Revelation 13, 1 through 10. Let's give our attentive listening to the reading of God's word. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Our uh, merciful God, we, we thank you uh, that you, you speak, uh, that you reveal yourself through your word to us, um, and that you do so faithfully. Uh, give us faithful ears to hear you. Uh, give us receptive hearts, uh, spiritual eyes to see what you're, you're showing us through this vision, and let it uh, have a real impact on, on our lives, uh, so that in hearing, Lord, uh, we don't just hear and forget uh, but, but hear and apply uh, what you want us to in our lives. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. So we're continuing in our uh, Revelation series. And last week we uh, covered chapter 12 and talked about the dragon, uh, which is uh, what represents Satan and how the dragon goes after the woman, which represents the people of God. We looked at that dynamic in chapter 12. And chapter 13 is kind of a continuation of that, but we have a new character. Uh, in addition to the dragon, now there is uh, a, the beast or a beast. Okay, So what's the beast? What does that represent? And um, how do we as Christians, as, as the woman in this vision, the people of God, uh, engage with that? And you know, most importantly, how do we have victory over the beast, like we talked about how we have victory over, over the dragon. So that's what we'll be focusing on today. Here's an outline um, for your note-taking purposes. Point number one, how not to fight the beast. All right, we'll start with that, how not to do this. Uh, number two, how to uh, really uh, properly fight the beast so you can, you can beat it. And finally, uh, a warning and an invitation that, we get from this vision. Okay, so how not to fight the beast, how to really fight the beast, and warning and invitation in the end. All right, so let's start with point number one, how not to fight. This, this is going to be a simple point, I hope, 
but I think it's an important one. Um, first, notice how the beast resembles the dragon that we looked at um, the past couple of weeks. The dragon had seven heads, uh, ten horns, seven diadems, right? Chapter 12. The beast, likewise, has seven heads, ten horns, but ten diadems. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean this beast is more powerful uh, than the dragon, but I think what it could mean is that the beast has wider reach. Remember, um, the diadems mean a kingly authority because it goes on crowns or kings. So the beast here could be pointing to some type of political entity, maybe, as some commentators have you know, conjectured, that has a, a wide impact on a lot, whole lot of people. That's also consistent with the illusion and connection this is making with the book of Daniel. Because if you look at Daniel chapter 7, you'll see four beasts, not one, but four. And, and the beast in this vision is pretty much identical. Um, you've got the appearance of a leopard, feet like a bear, mouth like a lion, ten horns, and etc. And in that vision in Daniel, the beast did represent kingdoms that successfully arose uh, like Babylon, Persia, Greece, and uh, a lot of theologians think the last one is Rome. And they all have one thing in common, and that is they persecuted the people of God, which is the woman in the, in the vision. So uh, some have reasonably inferred the beast here is also referring to um, political entities, kingdoms, powerful governments that come after the people of God. Um, here's another one. Uh, Greco-Roman times, it was blasphemous to worship anyone other than Caesar as Lord. And verse 6 in our passage says, the beast opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. Right. So uh, there's good reasons here. Right. I, I, I think um, some theologians, commentators make a good inference when they say this is referring to Rome. And it's a thing of the past. This vision kind of came true, and it's a thing of the past. I think that's a, you can make that case. But I personally don't take that interpretation myself, uh, despite all the connections to, to Rome. I think it's more accurate to interpret this beast as something that summarizes not only what Rome was, but also what Persia was, and Greece was, and uh, Babylon was. Um, it's any government, any institution, any culture, really, that persecutes the people of God, that views the people of God as, uh, as hostile. Um, one, one reason is, uh, it says here in verse 7, authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and as powerful as Rome was, it didn't have dominion over every tribe and every language and every nation. So it's a bit, it, that's a bit broad for Rome to just cover all the territory. And... Um, when you think about the whole thing about you know politics too, is um, it's really one th kind of area of life that is connected to all other areas. So if you have, for example, uh, a political entity or a government that is very anti-Christian, persecutes Christians, you probably have a culture that goes with that too. You probably have a society that's also anti-Christian. You probably have economic policies that are not disadvantages to Christians. So uh, it's not always helpful to try to pinpoint one slice of human life or one entity in human life to say, oh, this symbol refers to that because whatever you point to probably has a ripple effect on the, on the rest. So all that to say, I think a better interpretation of the beast is anything and everything and, and anyone and everyone that opposes God and, and, and the people of God.
All right. The bigger point is this. The bigger point is uh, the dragon sending the beast after the woman in the wilderness. Right. Uh, there's a more right. So we we know the dragon is after the woman. Satan is after the church. Satan hates the church, but he also sends beasts, uh, sort of his minions, to do his bidding, to to wage war against the church in a more widespread, perhaps local kind of way. Okay, and we'll talk about what that means. Um, but before that, I want to just mention okay what verse three tells us. It's very interesting little snippet here about how an inf- a mortal wound had been inflicted, but the wound was healed, meaning it, its power was very much intact, even though there was some offensive taken against it, try to bring it down, but it, was, it didn't do anything. I think uh, one way to interpret that is there is this temptation to fight this persecutor, this beast, on its own terms. So if it's coming at the church through political means or financial means, cultural means, then the temptation then is for the church to think, oh, we're going to combat this politically. We're going to combat this financially. We're going to combat this through cultural transformation. And I think all that that will do is what verse 3 says. You inflict a wound, but they'll heal and come right back at you. It's not uh, a biblically uh, encouraged method of fighting the beast. That's how you don't not fight the beast, all right? So if you have this idea of um, what would fix what would fix the situation where Christians are being persecuted is, is uh, political or financial or, or, or cultural, uh, it's, not, it's not the biblical answer. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world, right? I think that makes, a ver- makes sense of verse three, right? Physical means, political means, they're not how we fight this beast. Okay. Uh, listen to this excerpt from uh, a pastor named Scott Sauls. Uh, he wrote this, quote, Jesus gains power by surrendering power. Put Barabbas to death and it ends his revolution, but put Jesus to death and it launches his. As the crowds panicked and grasped for power, Jesus sat quietly, non-defensively, resolved, and ready to die as he awaited his unjust sentence from the Roman state. Panic and grasping for power is the way of the world. Remaining calm, loving, non-defensive, no matter what the political outcomes, is the way of Jesus and of his followers who have their kingdoms rightly ordered. Okay. Um, so that tells you, right, again, how not to fight the beast. Okay. Don't bring a political weapon to a spiritual fight. Uh, to put it differently. That's not the victory that God won for us. That's not the victory that Jesus won for us. That's not the victory that he wants you to win. Okay? All right, then, how do we, how do we fight this beast? Um, and how do we beat it? Uh, that's, the, that's the second point. Uh, from verse 4, you, you start getting a really strong clue to this. Short answer, though. Short answer is, it's all about worship. Right? It says there, and they worship the dragon, right? For he had given his authority to the beast. And it also says they worship the beast, okay? Uh, simply put, the way you fight this battle against the beast is by not worshiping him, okay? Simple enough. Uh, and before you check out and think, I'll never worship the beast, 
I'll never worship the dragon. Who do you think I am? Uh, think more on this with me. Right? This vision is given to us for a reason. Uh, and one of the effects that visions has is uh, a mirror effect. Stare long at it enough until you see your life reflected in it. It happens here. The question is, what does worshiping the beast and the dragon really mean? All right, short of attending like a satanic temple, uh, what does worshiping the beast, worshiping the dragon really mean? Let's keep looking. Take a look at verses 5 and 6. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Notice the repetition of the word blasphemy and how that is tied in with the authority of the beast. The authority of the beast is mainly found in its blasphemies against God. And so if you're under his authority, you serve him, you are subservient to him, you worship him, you are also a blasphemer of God. Okay, what is blasphemy? Let's get that out of the way too. Um, right, short of just you know saying, "Oh my God," <laughs> uh, what what is blasphemy? It's slandering God. It's profaning His name and His character uh, by misrepresenting Him, or by neglecting the truth of who he is, how he's truly made himself known to us. It's really the third commandment, which we looked at in our confession of faith. What is the third commandment? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Okay? A lot of Christians readily acknowledge, like, yeah, break all the Ten Commandments, but if you really hone in on how do you break the third um, Again, short of saying, oh my God, or cursing with God's name in it, uh, they're kind of out of clues as to how they break the third commandment. According to our catechism, the third commandment, here's what it requires. The holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. Okay. Uh, meaning, if you self-identify as a true worshiper of God, uh, you're not a blasphemer. You don't blaspheme his name, you praise his name. Well, then you have, you have this going for you. you. You properly represent, with holiness and reverence, God's true name, his true character, his true attributes, his true word, and his works. Okay. Um, what is forbidden in the third commandment? The third commandment forbids all profaning or abusing of anything by which God makes himself known. Right? You don't take anything by which God makes himself known and, you, you, and, and twist how he is represented. Now, here's a question for you. Does God make himself known through you? And are you always a faithful representative of who God is? Uh, you literally bear the name of Christ as Christians. Do you properly and accurately with holiness and reverence represent Christ through your thoughts, words, and deeds? Okay, now, the, now it's a lot more inclusive. 
of, of all of us how we break this command, isn't it? Uh, when we misrepresent God, we blaspheme his name. Uh, here's some examples to help us make this a bit more practical. Uh, take, for example, just our everyday like mundane feelings of um, feeling, feeling worried or feeling bitter towards someone. Okay? What is worrying? What, what is um, bitterness? Tim Keller has a quote. He put it like this. I thought it was helpful. He said, worrying is not believing God will get it right. And bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. Worrying is believing God will not get it right. Bitterness is believing he actually got it wrong. So in our worry and bitterness, right, we don't just tend towards like negative thoughts internally, um, uh, like within our own thoughts and about ourselves or others. We slander God's character at the same time, don't we? Uh, when we worry about money, when we worry about money, we're saying God isn't going to provide. Uh, he's not going to come through. By bi- being bitter towards an enemy rather than loving them, we're saying God doesn't have my best interest in mind. He doesn't know what is best for me when he tells me to love my enemies and forgive them. I know better. Uh, when we indulge, therefore, in worry, in bitterness, but realize uh, those aren't just negative emotions. These are high-caliber blasphemies. <laughs> You're saying something explicit about your God. Uh, what about this? What about all the ways in which we uh, tap into meaning in life apart from God? Does that have a way of either characterizing or mischaracterizing who God is? Absolutely. Right? If, if through your way of life, what you really communicate about the meaning of your life is something along the lines of, my life has meaning only if I have a successful career. My life has meaning only if I experience certain pleasures. My life has meaning only if I achieve a certain body image. My life has meaning only if my children are happy and, and healthy. Then in all these things, we are saying something blasphemous about God. Namely, all these things in life we tap meaning into, uh, they're better than God. And in comparison, God is inadequate. God alone is not enough. He is unattractive. He's small. That's blasphemy. Uh, Remember what we prayed in our confession just a few weeks ago, uh, that underlying all of our sins is either a, a false representation of who God is or complete negligence of God's true nature. In character, remember that? So we confess that sin is really the, the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised. It's the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, 
the person of God, not loved. This is underneath all sin, and this is all blaspheming, misrepresenting who God is. All sin is blasphemy. All sin is blasphemy. Okay, so you want to win, if you want to win this battle against the beast, uh, stop blaspheming his name. Uh, identify how you could be, uh, through your manner of life, misrepresenting who your God is. How you could be uh, misrepresenting who he is through your speech. Uh, how you could be replacing the beauty of God and the glory of God with idols that, that your life seems to be saying is a lot more glorious than God is. Uh, identify these areas get into this battle, and start testifying to the true nature of who he really is. Like Kevin mentioned earlier, through the songs we sing and the confessions we make and listening to the word of God and saying amen, I agree. Um, come back to testifying to who God really is. Uh, that's how you win this battle against the beast. That's how you really fight this fight. The psalmist often, right, just goes on and on talking about who God is to him. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. God is my rock and my salvation, the fortress against my foes. What is he doing? He's pushing against blasphemy. He's, he's pressing into the truth of who God is. And Jesus himself said, the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Truth. In your spirit, in your heart of hearts, do you treasure the Lord for who he truly is? That's because that's worship. To treasure God above all, like he actually is above all. That's worship. What do you profess through your manner of living, manner of life, as your greatest treasure in life? What is properly, most explicitly represented in your life? Uh, through your everyday relationships, everyday thoughts, daydreams, your habits and temperaments, what does your life say about what you delight in the most, find meaning in the most? And if it isn't God, uh, according to this vision, right, uh, that's a blasphemous way of life. Uh, when the world and all the things in the world fill our lives, right, when all these idols fill our lives, that's what we get in verse 7. We get conquered by the beast. The beast, it says here, right, will conquer some people of God. Um, biblically speaking, there's really no qualitative difference between being conquered by the devil and being possessed by the devil. Right? There's a great visual difference. Right? Qualitatively, though, not much. And what does it mean to be conquered by the beast here? Um, you blaspheme his name. You misrepresent his name. You worship idols. Okay. This, is a, this is a worship war. And by that, I don't mean like, do we sing Hillsong or not? That's by, by worship war, I mean, I mean this. It starts with this. 
the question Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And, and more accurately, what does your manner of life say that I am? Uh, that's worship. Uh, what does your marriage say about your God? Uh, your career plans. What does your spending say about your God? What is your parenting, your, your educating? Ask yourselves, am I acknowledging God in all of these things? Am I properly representing his name? Am I properly representing his sufficiency, his power, his beauty, his glory in all of these things? Or am I unknowingly blaspheming his name? This vision is a warning for us. Right, and perhaps a mirror image. Right? Look at the beast. He's in your life. He's in the life of the saints. Are you fighting him? Right? How's that going? Um, to not fight means only one thing. You've surrendered. Right? You've given in. You've, you've caved. You've adapted to uh, the life that the beast is, is luring you into. Uh, so let's go to the last point. Let's be warned. Let's be more properly warned about this because there's warning language here we can't gloss over. Because um, and then after that we'll be ready to receive the invitation that comes with with the warning. Okay. So verses um, eight and nine says this, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Okay, those who dwell on earth, as we learned previously, refers to those who are making their permanent residence, and they're per- perfectly fine with that, making their permanent home and resting place on this, on this earth, on this side of heaven. Um, and it says here, those who dwell on earth will worship the beast. It's almost like a, a natural and inevitable correlation. If you if you make your dwelling on earth, you worship the beast. Right? Notice what a warning that is. Uh, it's when you feel most adapted, adjusted, and comforted and situated in this world. That's when you know you're worshiping the beast. Uh, you don't need to curse God to his face. You don't need to uh, quit church, live in perpetual sin, even grievous sins. All you need to do is dwell here. Make your dwelling here. That's all it takes. Uh, That's quite a warning. It's when our love of the world, love of comfort and ease, uh, transcend our love of God, right? We worship the beast. And, and, and here's the real warning, actually. Those who remain this way, uh, never turn back from this, they will be proven as those whose names are not in the book of life. Right. In Scripture, there's no stronger warning than this. Um, uh, your, your name might not be in the book of life. Uh, that's, an, in, that's as emphatic a call to repent as it gets. Uh, for us to repent and return to the true purpose of our existence, and that is to dwell with our maker, to make our dwelling with him. 
uh, and stop loving the world, stop befriending the world, befriend your God. Befriend the Lord. So that's the invitation. With the warning comes the invitation to turn back, to, to return, to seek the Lord while he may be found. And this passage anticipates God's true people responding to that call. So it responds with this very hopeful line in the end. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints, the people who are written in the book of life. Here is a call for them to endure, for them to keep the faith. Right? It's not just a warning, it's a call. It's a call to endure. Endure through this temporary persecution and series of temptations on this side of heaven. Endure the beast's waging of war against you with his blasphemies. The world's, uh, endure the world's blasphemous way of living. Uh, endure the way the world lives for people's approval. Endure uh, the way that people live for fleeting pleasures. Endure the way people live for money, accomplishments. Endure. Endure foregoing those things. Endure uh, not making enough money because you have integrity. <laughs> not, uh, endure uh, uh, foregoing overworking because you have contentment in the Lord. Uh, endure that because of how you want to represent God. Endure. Okay. Let's start here. Let's begin here. Let me give you two quick applications as we close uh, so you can consider this with, on your own, with your family, with friends, how to, how to go about doing this more practically, routinely, enduring, fighting this war. Uh, First, consider this, Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10 says, don't ever give up gathering together, meeting together, but encourage one another uh, as the day, final day draws near. God has made it very explicit that he considers it to be our absolute, to our best absolute interest to focus, prioritize on our worship and fellowship and through it become equipped for this spiritual battle. He's made it very clear. Um, I don't say this that much, but you do know, right, church is not a place where you come for friendships, per se. Uh, it's, it's, it's where you come to get equipped for battle. Imagine um, a soldier, maybe a private or something like that, getting sort of you know, dropped off in the shores of Normandy in World War II, and they're about to fight off the Nazis and you know, win for the Allies. And the, the soldier comes to the general and says, General, I can't, I can't fight this fight. And he says, why? Because my friends are not in this battalion. They're over at the 43rd. Can you transfer me over there where my friends are, where I would feel like fighting? Um, I think the general would look at the the guy and say, "Uh, why are you here? What are you doing here? Um, And and getting back on the, the program. And then Watch any war movie. What happens over time as people actually fight shoulder to shoulder with one another? They become friends, right? It comes. It, it comes with it, but it, it can't be your priority. You're missing the point. Um, God has called us to worship and fellowship and make it an absolute priority, not because we, we, we're lonely and we need friendship, but primarily because there's a beast and a dragon coming after you, and you need to be equipped for battle and for spiritual warfare. Um, so does, your, does the way in which you invest in fellowship and worship and, and things like that um, appear, appear as though you believe this? Uh, yes, God, you're, you're right. 
God is right. He's wise in prescribing this for me. Or does it seem to say, uh, uh, he's just saying that as a suggestion and I have other priorities in mind. So think about that. Are you prioritizing your worship and fellowship? Second, um, don't define your spiritual victories, battle, right, uh, via means of you know, politics, uh, economics, or cultural engagement, and things of that sort. Because that's focusing on your productivity. Define it more spiritually through your fruitfulness. Uh, look inward. Um, are you winning the battle there? Are you growing in your love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, or gentleness, self-control, especially to the people nearest to you? Are you winning that battle? Because that's fruitfulness. And God has always focused our attention on fruitfulness. Um, he, he says in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is, this is my will for you. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. Your, sanctif- your growth in your Christ-likeness, your spiritual fruit-bearing, not your productivity. Uh, are you measuring, I mean, you don't even have to measure it, but if you were to measure it, are you measuring this more than you're measuring your productivity? Your spiritual maturity, fruitfulness. Okay. God, in his infinite wisdom and knowledge, says that's the very best thing to focus on in your life. Do you believe him? Uh, does your life appear as though you believe him? Okay. Is fruit bearing your absolute number one priority in your life? If not, make it so. Make it so today. Okay. Put your time, body, money where your spiritual mouth is. So let's endure in in these things together in our worship, fellowship, fruit-bearing as a church, because that's how you beat the beast. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this vision. Uh, Lord, I pray that we will keep it in mind and let it continue, continue to have an effect on our hearts, on our lives. Lord, uh, we, we just want to take a moment now and repent of the ways that we may have uh, misrepresented you, who you are, through our lives, through our priorities, misplaced uh, affections, uh, the way that we have uh, uh, turned after idols, uh, the way that we have, in all of these ways, have uttered untruths, falsehoods about you, your sufficiency, your beauty, and your glory. Uh, Lord, uh, awaken us to this reality. Help us to re-engage the enemy properly. Um, And Lord, in in our manner of life, in all aspects of our lives, Lord, may we truly represent you, uh, testify to who you really are. You are good. You are our refuge. You are our helper. You are our friend, our provider in times of need, our redeemer, our healer, our savior. And we love you. Uh, May our lives reflect that truth properly now. We pray in your son's name. Amen.